HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking with one of my very favorite guests, Tom Philpot, who, in case you have missed one of the many times he has been on the show in the past, I don't know, 11 years, um, Tom is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones magazine. Um, and by the way, his book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It, was published just last year in August um, still out there on the bookstore shelves. And if you haven't bought a copy, you should now. Um, so, Tom, how are you? I'm good, Katie. So happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So you have been on fire lately. I mean, every single uh, piece that you've put published in, in Mother Jones in the last like three weeks, I've thought, oh, God, what a great show that would be. <laughs> but this one, um, which you called the climate bill, even big ag loves, which came out in on June 7th, for anybody who wants to look it up uh, in Mother Jones, um, is actually a story about the Growing Climate Solutions Act. So let's start by explaining what that is and who the major sponsors in Congress are for that uh, act. Yeah, so the, the Growing Climate Solutions Act is a bill that um, I think was introduced for the first time in 2020, um, and it just reemerged this year. And um, and what it does is it it's got some kind of high flown rhetoric about how it's gonna you know <laughs> bring up you know bring our agriculture into a, a climate ready era and, and and stuff like that. But what it ends up being is um, essentially asking or telling the USDA to codify a carbon market for agriculture. Mm -hmm. So it would just, it's sort of asking the, the Secretary of Agriculture to, to set up and certify and sort of give a stamp of approval to um, private companies out there, private operations out there that are quantifying and giving um, carbon credits to ag producers and then selling them on the open ag market. And, you know, it, it sounds at first glance like it's this great thing because there's all these Republicans who sponsored it. Um, Joni Ernst, who is, the, you know, the, one of the senators from Iowa, uh, yeah. very aligned with Trump. 
very, very aligned with uh, fossil fuel interests, yeah. agricultural interests, is one of the main sponsors. Um, it's got 49 sponsors in the Senate. And so um, wow. it would almost certainly pa- pass. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be in danger of getting, um, you know, getting hit with a, um, God, the word just escaped me. With a filibuster? Uh, yes. Let me say that again. <laughs> it, uh, it is not in danger of getting hit by, the fil- by a filibuster. And so it would almost certainly pass the Senate without problems. Um, it, it could probably pass the House as well. Um, Biden and Vilsack have both, you know, in, in general, praised the idea of carbon markets for agriculture. So it looks like it's something that could, that could pass this year. And what I argue in my piece is it is much less of a breakthrough than it looks like at first glance. Oh, yeah. I thought it looked like, I mean, the way you explained it. Well, first of all, one of the things, and and you pointed out to me that it's not really a cap and trade. I mean, a carbon market is a little bit different from a cap and trade scheme. But still, I mean, if you think about it, like, let's talk about, for example, livestock you know, the livestock industry, um, it's it's a corporation like a Tyson or a JBS that owns the animals. But then you have the producer, you know, who owns the houses and who feeds the animals and carts out the carcasses and deals with the, you know, uh, waste ma- manure, you know, the manure. Yeah. So, so who's going to be making, who is going to get the carbon off? Who's going to get the carbon offset or whatever? Who's going to be, who's going to be trading with some other industry? Is it going to be JBS or Tyson who makes the trade? Or is it going to be the little producer guy who's basically barely making, you know, ends meet as it is? Like, I I don't even understand how that's going to work for somebody like that. Okay. Well, let's, let's just start with, that that guy that farmer who owns um a couple of hog houses or right. um or let's say like a, a dairy farmer who's sort of scaled up and has a couple of you know large confinement dairy operations so yeah. right now those operations are um extremely problematic in climate terms because um, let's say let's talk about a dairy operation. So dairy cows emit methane in the form of enteric digestion, burps. Yep. Um, but then also when you mass a bunch of dairy cows together and you have to put their manure in a giant lagoon, um, and you produce more manure than can be handled by the ground around it, by the by the land around it, um, you also get um, substantial methane emissions from that manure and you also get nitrous oxide emissions from that manure. Okay. So this bill, let's be clear. It would do absolutely nothing about that. That's not even part of the discussion. It's not, it's a massive liability. And, um, and as you, as you pointed out um, right now, um, if you're Tyson or um, a giant dairy processor, then um, that's off your that's sort of off your books. Um, you don't own that stuff. Um, you, you know, even Tyson that owns the hogs that go into the farm or the chickens that go into the farm, um, they have no ownership over that manure. They wash their nope. hands of it. Yeah, um, so well, that's all- right. That's a big problem with that industry, right? Is yeah. they just you know they walk they say oh you that's the dead animals and the manure are your problem. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a shame. Yeah. You know, we're, we're so sorry that it's a problem, but it has nothing to do with us. Which is, yeah, we're not going to be paying for any methane digesters for you, homie, or nothing right. like that. <laughs> yes. Okay, but let's talk about methane digesters because um, now you own one. Of, let's say you have one of those things. Um, I think that one of the um, the dynamics that's going on here is that there will be a push and I've, I talked to people, I, I didn't get into it in the story, but I have more sort of in the works in this topic. Um, so I think one of the pushes is going to be, let's get, if we can get government subsidies of various different kinds to buy these methane digesters. And so a methane digester for a, a large dairy operation costs about $7 million. So mm. that that's a substantial chunk of change. And, they're, you know, they're being used in very limited capacity because not many, even large dairies, want to uh, put that expenditure in. Right. Um, but there are various programs, and I can see various more coming down the pike that would pick up the bill for that, um, for, for an operation like that. So what a, what a methane digester does is you sort of cap it over the, the, the lagoon and it captures the, the methane that's being generated by the breakdown of that manure and, and speeds it up and captures it. And, um, and then you can burn it. Um, and there's another process that you can turn it into essentially natural gas, the exact same stuff that they're fracking um, right. in places like Pennsylvania and North Dakota. And they, they can take that natural gas and sell it on the open market. They can liquefy it and use it to run their machines. And that is being presented as this amazing climate solution. And in fact, you could get credit for that under this under a, a carbon market like this. Um, this bill wants to set up. You could um, you could oh. easily say that we offset this many um, th- you know this many um, methane emissions, and so you know pay us that much money. And that's being pitched to farmers as you can not only you know not, if you put one of these in. You can not only sell the gas on the market, but you can also probably get a carbon credit. And, okay. um, and I think this is really deeply problematic because what it does is, A, it gives yet another income stream for these huge operations. Right. Um, and B, um, if they can get subsidies, which is, I think, a big push that's going on for that $7 million, because no one's going to want to pay for that, even you know, no matter what these promised income streams are. Um, then that's giving incentives for you as a dairy producer. Hmm, well, right now I've got 50 cows and I'm getting my ass kicked by the market. Right. If I expanded to 500 cows or 1,000 cows and I can get a subsidy for a methane digester and then I can have all these different income streams and the fact that I'm getting almost nothing for my milk um, doesn't matter anymore because I'm selling natural gas and I'm selling um, carbon credits. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it mm. puts incentives in place for smaller operations to get really big because you have to be a certain size to justify that $7 million kind of oh, yeah. facility. You, um, you have to have animals within the thousands. Otherwise, you don't need a manure lagoon. Exactly. I mean, you have to be you know, big enough to need a manure lagoon. Um, yeah. And if you're not, then... Um, then, then this isn't for you, and you're also not polluting the environment, and you're getting no credit for that. Um, right, right. And, uh, <laughs> and so, and so, it puts these perverse incentives. And I, I don't want 
I don't want to geek out too hard on energy policy um, on this this food politics po- podcast, but there's right, another right. dimension here too, and that is that if you talk to climate experts, what we need to do as a society is um, is basically get away from the. I mean, this is not rocket science. Get away from the burning of fossil fuels. Like we need to um, to stop you know, sort of combustion, whether it's internal combustion engines for cars, whether it's um, natural gas, home heating, um, and things like that. And we need to electrify everything and stop using natural gas because natural gas does create carbon when it's burned. And um, there are methane leaks uh, associated with it. Methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. Yep. And so what this would, if if they scaled it up to their sort of dreams and fantasies, it would be this huge new source of um, of natural gas, and it would um, it would justify keeping um, natural gas infrastructure like pipelines in play when we need to be shutting them down, mm-hmm. and it sort of greenwashes the whole um, the whole operation. And you're already seeing the gas industry use it as a greenwashing tool like hey you know we're gonna sell biogas um and you know that's just right. sort of natural gas produced from these methane digesters and so we're already seeing it um used as a greenwashing tool and that in that way and a thing like this sort of carbon market that this bill envisions would just put more momentum behind that um, is my argument yeah, I, 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 that certainly makes sense to me. I mean, why, why, why have it's it's sort of the path of least resistance in a funny way. Even though it's expensive, right? It's yeah. still it maintains the status quo on a fundamental level. And so you exactly. don't have to change infrastructure. You don't have to ch- change people's minds about what they're supposed to use to fuel their car or their home or whatever. It's just like it lets you keep going in the direction that we've been going. And I think most of us, you know. Well, some of us anyway recognize that that is not a direction that we want to keep going in. So let's let's go on to the to the go back to the agricultural to the to the carbon market concept for agriculture. So that sort of exists already. It hasn't been super effective. Um, But who who may I ask is determining the carbon offset payment like who's this is going to be the USDA that makes these determinations about agricultural emissions. Well, so right now there is a bit of a wild west, um, and you've got several companies. You've got in, this this company called Indigo, which has gotten a lot of hype in the past few years, and is led right. by a bunch of former executives from Syngenta and those kinds of companies. Um, you've mm, got those companies themselves have gotten together and created an entity that is going to be. Um, participating in in carbon markets and by 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 that i mean um essentially deeming some some activity you know that that farmers do you know this activity saves let's say a ton of carbon from going into the atmosphere and then it will take that and that sort of promise or that um that claim and sell it on the market and the going price right now is 15 dollars a ton okay so it'll mm-hmm. sell it to some polluting company that, whether it be an oil company, an airline, um, you know, something like that, that mm-hmm. wants to say that we have reduced our net, our quote unquote net emissions, 
So instead of changing, so if you're, let's say you're Chevron, right. um, you could, you know, you could buy these credits on the market and tell your shareholders, oh, we um, reduced our net emissions by 15% because we offset them by buying these, um, these ag uh, based carbon credits. And so that, that right now exists. Um, it's um, on a very minuscule scale scale. There's not a whole lot of trading. There's not a whole lot of interest in it. And $15 is uh, considered to be a price that isn't worth it for farmers to change any kind of practice um, uh -huh. to, to get that $15. And so um, what this, what this bill represents is that industry going to Congress and saying, hey, you know, essentially, hey, regulate us, but not too much. Um, and, and why yeah. I say that is what, what they want is they want, they want the USDA stamp. They, they want to say that these carbon credits are USDA certified to give them credibility. And they want the U.S. They want to work with the USDA to come up with a list of practices that can that could uh, be eligible for carbon credits. It could be um, I'm planting cover crops now. Okay, so um, you know so many acres of cover crops. You know, and they'll you know work with some scientists presumably and say so many acres of cover crops equals one ton of carbon, um, and that that's one credit. Um, and so the idea is. That if they get enough credibility with it, that will juice. So here's how the, the theory is supposed to work. That if they get enough credibility and people are more and more concerned about climate change, then these polluted companies will buy more and more credits because they're under pressure to uh, improve their images. And the price of the credits will go up. They'll go from 15 to 30 to 50. And when they get to be 50, now maybe um, more farmers will be interested in doing them. So maybe they'll plant more cover crops. Um, right. You know, I think um, methane digestion would definitely be, you know, Bill Sack is very excited about it. He's uh, worked in the dairy industry between his two stints at USDA. Um, love the idea of these methane digesters. Um, it's very easy to see methane digestion. Um, being on that list of uh, possible credits. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in that regard, um, so, so, that, so that's support, um, is supposed to be like how it works, but then we can talk about the reality of how it will probably work instead. Yes. <laughs> and that so, reality, yeah, right. Okay, so I was talking to this guy. You may have had him on the show, Ben Lillison from the um, a think tank in Minneapolis called IATP, which is a great um, agricultural kind of think tank. I don't think I've had Ben on the show, but I, I've had many people from IATP. Okay, you should get Ben yeah. sometime. Ben is great. I'm very familiar with the organization anyway. Yeah. yeah. So Ben was telling me, and I quote him in the article, he was like, look, so this is a carbon trading scheme, but even if you're, and it's, you know, one of the things that are that that the boosters will tell you is, hey, it's market based. This is a market based solution to climate change. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, Ben is like, look, even if you think that that market based solutions are the answer, this one is a joke because if there's no cap on greenhouse gas emissions, there is nothing that is going to push these polluting companies to. Um, to, to do anything to even buy these offsets um, because uh, because there's no incentive. The only incentive is sort of literally greenwashing. It's reputation washing. 
It's, Especially you know, if they get fuel. expensive, right? Especially yeah, if they go then, up to like 50 bucks a ton. You know, yeah. if you're Chevron, you're not going to be buying that. Yeah, and you're going to go why? hunting for... You're going to go hunting for some deal somewhere else that, that's cheaper, or are you going to say, you know what, um, that's not a priority anymore. Um, and so, uh, and this exact same thing happened in um, 2009 when there was a bill that made its way through Congress that was a cap and trade bill. So it had a carbon market, but there was going to be a cap on carbon emissions and um, and what happened to that is it just completely got watered down in Congress. The um, the people in the Senate, I mean, it passed it passed through the House uh, with agriculture completely exempted from any kind of greenhouse gas emissions cap. <laughs> agriculture was only going to get goodies. Um, talking right. about emissions was verboten. Um, and um, and then it went to the Senate, and it got so watered down in the Senate. So many industries were exempted. I think the electricity industry was exempted. Oh, uh, John sake. Kerry, then a senator, was bending over backwards to get it through the Senate, and he just traded everything away in it, and it still lost. And so <laughs> the, the, the famous Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill lost. And simultaneously with those negotiations, there was this hype building up around a carbon market for agriculture, there was a Chicago commodities trading, um, you know, that sort of world started trading, um, you know, basically carbon credits in agriculture. The price went up a little bit as the negotiations went that went on. And when the uh -huh. negotiations collapsed and the bill collapsed, that market completely collapsed. Wow. And, the, and it ended up shutting down. And there are farmers who still feel, feel, feel burned by that, who made decisions with the expectation of getting um, some kind of payment and it just never happened. And, and so what Ben Wilson says is, look, um, if you want to do a carbon market, you've got to have a cap or it's just going to, the, the, the market is always going to be very thin. The, the, the credits are going to be very, not very expensive and it's just not going to move the needle um, for, for farms. And so, it's um, it's just legislation that is um, you know it's sort of set up to um, to, to make good headlines, but it really isn't going to do anything. But it, it gives the appearance of doing something about climate change and agriculture, and it gives it gives some cover to Republicans. Um, totally, because yes. Of course, they can say, "Well, look, I mean, we you know, we sponsored this legislation." Oh. Yeah, yeah, you guys didn't want that, but we sponsored it. Yeah, right. it's a very, but that's the thing. Like it's Ernst. like if there's no cap, I mean, like that's the you know that is the the crux of it. It's like there's no cap. So who? I mean, for instance, like when a guy plows a okay. So wait, I I know I'm getting I'm going all over the map as usual, but there's no there's no upper limit. No one has set an upper limit on either agricultural emissions or to my knowledge, any really significant caps on any other uh, no. industries that pollute. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's true. What we have, what we have are goals, um, but we don't have <laughs> any kind of enforceable cap. And we right. did have, you know, we should say that we did have a drop in total overall U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, basically... In my piece, you can see, um, you know, I've got numbers from 1990 yeah. to, I think, 2020. 
And for overall emissions, they peak in about 2007, and they've been dropping ever since. Oh, so oh, oh so slowly, but they've been dropping. Mm-hmm. And the major reason behind that, uh, I don't go into this in the piece, but it isn't any policy. It's not any like regulation. What happened was the fracking boom basically dumped um, natural gas on the marketplace, and it got so cheap that it basically became uneconomical to burn coal for, for electricity anymore. And so right. we had this plunge in coal-fired power plants and a, a big rise in natural gas-fired uh, power plants. And, um, and as a result, so natural gas is really bad stuff, but it, it's way less carbon-intensive carbon than coal. Sure, and and so that did um, that is a driving force that pushed um, overall greenhouse gas emissions down. Mm. Although I should say that there are probably um, pretty good there's pretty good science that uh, natural that all this fracking and all these wells were emitting a lot more methane into the atmosphere than is um, found in the models, and so that some of that greenhouse gas drop might be. You know, it might not be real. Like we right. actually might have continued to um, to uh, to raise greenhouse gas emissions if you factor in this sort of phantom methane from from fracking. Um, but then, if you look at um, agricultural emissions, there is no drop. Um, I think I calculated right. that they're eleven percent higher in two thousand twenty than they were in nineteen ninety. You just see this steady rise. And what that steady rise really represents is the expansion of these CAFOs. It's, you know, uh-huh. like the, the, the biggest source of methane um, is enteric fermentation. It's the, it's the cow burps. But that's been yeah. pretty steady. It's only risen a little bit. Um, and that's just uh, fluctuations in the size of the, of the cattle and, and dairy herd. But where it's risen is from manure. Um, yeah. Basically, the, uh, you know, ever expansion of CAFOs and the, ever proliferation of CAFOs means more and more of these manure lagoons. And so, um, and that means more and more emissions from, uh, you know, both nitrous oxide and methane emissions from these, these manure uh, ponds. And I got to say that it is verboten in the U S political discourse to talk about a cap on ag emissions, like Waxman and Markey, when they were doing their bill in 2009, Mm-hmm. It didn't even enter the House floor with a cap on ag emissions. It was uh, already exempt when it hit the House floor, and those are de- those are good Democrats. Um, right. And Markey's a you know a great environmentalist. No no shade on Markey, but it, it's just the the lobby is so the ag lobby is so powerful that it's it like this sort of off limits thing. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing because, I, I, you know, I was doing a little reading about, you know, sort of around this. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, what about just plow? I mean, people who are growing, you know, thousands and thousands of acres of corn and soy, for example, as in, you know, something that is very, um, you know, nutrient intensive, water intensive. And all of that plowing releases enormous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Like, how are they ever going to figure out what the limit on, you know, there's no limit. No one has set a limit. I don't know how they would measure that. You know, I, I don't even know where they would start with learning, uh, you know, figuring out how to to reach a limit on what agricultural entities can. I mean, assuming it becomes eventually something that 
political people have the will to talk about. Um, but assuming that there is ever, uh, you know, that moment when they start to actually measure greenhouse gases that are being emitted from large scale farming operations. Like, I don't even know where the technology exists that you would be able to determine that. I mean, are you aware of any any ability to actually see what it costs in carbon dequestration when they plow a field? Well, so the thing, the thing about that specifically is that when they plowed up the prairie in the 19th century, that was mm. a massive transfer of carbon from the ground to the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but, and, and it was huge. And we're still seeing similar things happen today, like in the Brazilian Cerrado, where they're expanding mm -hmm. corn and soybeans all the time. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're taking carbon locked up and putting it in the atmosphere. In a place, in the Corn Belt today, the carbon fluxes are, are not as bad because, you know, they tell you, oh, you know, we plant, you know, we, we plant this corn that moves behind these roots. And, um, and you know, maybe you're, um, you're vaporizing into the air a lot of carbon in the soil that you just put in there in the last season, but we're not seeing a big, uh, car, you know, carbon emissions from that today. It's sort of already done. But I see. you are very correct to think about that process of planting corn and soybeans because there is another greenhouse gas that is way more powerful than carbon. It's emitted in, in lower quantities, but it's a really potent greenhouse gas. It's called nitrous oxide. Mm -hmm. And nitrous oxide emissions from fertilizer application in the corn belt um, mm -hmm. is massive. Um, and I'm trying... The um, trying to find the numbers, it's linked to in my piece, but it is a substantial portion of the greenhouse gas emissions from, from agriculture. Um, basically, application of fertilizers for corn and soybeans, whether it be manure and these industrial that's way over applied in close to these industrial livestock facilities, or just sort of you know, fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer applied. Um, a good portion of that goes into the atmosphere as nitrous oxide, and that is an extremely potent heat-trapping gas. Mm. And, um, and so um, an actual cap on agriculture could be fantastic. It could, spur, it could spur innovation. It could spur new ways of farming. Um, it could spur people to adopt you know, new rotations. It could create new markets for crops coming out of those rotations. Um, but without a cap, it's, it's pretty stagnant. And I was just saying that, you know, what you might get is, you know, a farmer uses pre precision agriculture to lower his fertilizer application by 10% and claim some um, carbon credit for it, you know, probably through one of these giant companies like Bayer and everyone pats themselves on the back but 10% is not going to cut it. Uh, we right. need to cut emissions by a lot more than that. That's sort of just kind of more momentum behind the current system. And so I, I think really the, the goal would, for the environment would be to break this taboo on regulating agriculture and break this tab. You know, I think, you know, we obviously as a society, we need a cap on emissions on everything. And, um, of some kind, but um, but the idea of exempting agriculture from that just doesn't make any sense at all. 
No. And, and, and it has always been this way. I mean, it hasn't, I mean, every other industry uh, has, has to account for its pollution. And somehow agriculture, as you have said, I guess, three times now on this, <laughs> that the agriculture gets a pass. Anyway, we have to take a very short break. For a sponsor drop, we'll be right back with Tom Philpot, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, um, you know, essentially sort of a weird Ponzi scheme that is probably going to pass through uh, our current legislature. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, so, Tom... (laughs) You know, you were talking about like the USDA would give a stamp, you know, that would certify that somebody is recognizing, uh, you know, their carbon limits or they're, you know, they're doing the right thing, et cetera. But I'm just wondering, like, say, for instance, by some miracle, uh, you know, meat companies or dairies or whatever were somehow suddenly obliged to account for all of the methane, nitrous oxide, hydrogen sulfide, and all the other, and ammonia, all of which are spewing out of their, you know, manure lagoons. Where's the enforcement going to come from? Like, who's going to come out there and measure their stuff and then say, you way over the limit there, homie. Pony up. Buy yourself a credit. Do something. I mean, like, who, who would even be in charge of that? Would that be the USDA that would go? I mean, we'd have to hire, have a whole new workforce, which might not be a bad well, thing. But, you yeah. know. I would hope it wouldn't be the USDA because, um, <laughs> you know, the USDA, one of the problems with it is that it both regulates agriculture to an extent and promotes agriculture. And so it has yeah. all these conflicts. Um, I think it would be a great job for the EPA and there are various um, efforts out there to get the EPA to measure and regulate air pollution from these, these CAFOs. And I think the, those gases that you were just talking about are really, they're not greenhouse gases for the most part. They're really powerful air pollutants that give people asthma and cause all kinds of problems. And there was yeah. just that study out from those University of Minnesota researchers 
on the staggering number of deaths caused every year by agriculture-related emissions that are mostly from those operations. Yes. Um, and, and they're exempt from the Greenhouse, from the, uh, the Clean Air Act. And, um, and I think that, you know, you're right, there's a logistical problem there. But on the other hand, these operations tend to be pretty geographically concentrated. And so, oh. you know, why couldn't there be um, in, in states with lots of CAFOs, a, a USDA, or I'm sorry, um, not USDA, uh, EPA, EPA agency yeah. that, um, you know, like, let's say Eastern North Carolina, let's say mm-hmm. in the middle of Iowa, um, mm-hmm. you know, other places where they exist at great concentrations, the um, Delmarva coast off of um, the, the Mid-Atlantic. Right. Um, you could set up an EPA office and they could do um, random testing. They could go, hey, we're, you know, here we are. We showed up at your farm. We're putting this, um, this, this monitor up and we're getting a baseline and we'll be back sometime in the next two years to get the, um, the next reading. Uh, ho- hope you're able to um, do something about these emissions. <laughs> right. Because um, right know, now it's not looking good. <laughs> yeah. And this, you know, something similar could be done with methane. That same, that same department could be, um, could be monitoring methane. And, you know, I, I think it would be an expenditure, but I think it would be, um, if you compare it to the number of deaths and air pollution every year and the ravages of climate change, I think it could be a, a very smart expenditure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that would be my answer to that, that, you know, it is it is daunting, but it could be done in a rational way that um, that wouldn't be overly expensive for the benefits you get. I, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, if you did a cost uh, analysis of what all of those medical conditions are, you know, because it's always low and in- almost always located in a low income area. Right. So those yeah, are people right. who generally tend not to have insurance or have insurance that isn't adequate to their needs. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole different thing. But let's let's move on for a second, because I I, I, I I wanted to ask you about another piece that you wrote real quick, because we only have a couple of minutes left. But aren't fundamentally, aren't we past the point where a debate like this is even reasonable? Like the idea that you could have a carbon market or even do cap and trade. It's like, can't, isn't it time to just start regulating the hell out of all of this stuff? I mean, yeah, I would have thought. I, I mean, I think it's, I think this, the, we are past the point now where we can offer incentives to industries that say, well, you can, you know, buy carbon and then continue to pollute to pollute with impunity. I think we yeah. have to stop it altogether. It's got to be ratcheted way back down or pay a huge price financially for it. You know, yeah, you I have think so to. Too. I mean, I, I can't even believe we're we're discussing this given what is going on with the climate right now. It's just it's kind of mind blowing that you know. Yeah, and, and then. Sorry, go I was ahead. just going to say there, there, there's just so much historical amnesia uh, in this country that it's so instantaneous. Like yes. when, <laughs> when I did it, when I did a deep dive into researching this piece on the Growing Climate Solutions Act, I was plunged into 2009. And 2009 really isn't that long ago. No, the whole saga around Waxman Markey. Um, came back to me and I covered it. I was working for Gris at the time, and right. I, you know, 
you know, Katie, I'll get one, I'll get an obsession and I'll, I'll write about something over and over again, especially yeah. in that, in those grist days, I went on a um, wax and lucky tear in those days. <laughs> Good if for you, you. If you Google my name and, um, and that um, legislation and, um, and we've forgotten every lesson from, from Waxman Markey. We've forgotten, you know, there were lots and lots of critiques that came out about even an actual cap and trade mm-hmm. bill, but a trade bill with no cap. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, how are they so brazen as to put something like this out? And where is the outrage about it? Well, that's um, the and thing. How, how can this be bipartisan? How can, how can all these Democrats be um, lined up with it? Um, it's just... It's just ridiculous. Well, it was amazing to me, as you point out in the piece, that even the Nature Conservancy is on board with this. I mean, sorry, what? You know, are you are you whose side are these people on? (laughs) I'll say two things about that. One is I think there is a legit desire on the part of these groups, environmental defense, Nature Conservancy. Yeah. To try, you know, they're in the trenches trying to get everyone, you know, we we can talk about just how pathetic the U.S. response to climate change has been. Uh, It's been essentially a non-response. Yeah. And we sort of got bailed out by this fracking boom, which has all these other negative consequences. That's the only reason why our emissions are down a little bit. I should say that wind and, uh, and solar has um, has expanded dramatically, and that's a, that's a great thing. So it's not all terrible, but most sure. of that drop was from fracking. We just need a lot more wind and solar. Um, but um, where was I going with that? Just the the sort of the historical amnesia yeah. of you know the collective uh, you know, and especially congressional. Um, awareness, since most of these dinosaurs have been in there for, you know, way too long. You know, the, yeah. the fact that they, you know, that they, they've they forgotten everything they might have known at one time. <laughs> I know. You know, and, but, the, um, but the point of not having a cap on anything is just completely insane. I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, it, it's just, it's just mind boggling. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of where I am with this. I think we need to figure out ways to have a just transition to cleaner energy and cleaner farming. And it's, I mean, the tools are all out there. We can expand wind and solar. We can work on the storage issues that you need for wind and solar. Um, We can expand, you know, we can do crop diversification. We we know the things that make um, agriculture more climate friendly. It's just, that's not a mystery. That's not something that, is a big head scratcher like huh how do we do that right it's more like you know um stop putting animals in capos bring them back to the land diversify your crops um you know etc etc these are the things that we have to do and this kind of activity this this growing climate solutions act um i think takes us farther away from that not closer to it yeah it's like a distraction it's just a distraction and yeah. it makes, you know, it makes everybody feel good. And all of the, you know, congressional guys, you know, the representatives and the senators pat themselves on the backs and say, look what we did, you know, and then it, and it's business as usual. There's nothing uh, new or innovative about it. It's very disappointing. Well, I wanted to it's ask a- you about the OSHA thing, but I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. What were you going to say, Tom? Sorry. I was just going to say it's a beard for the status quo. I mean, that's yeah, right. um, clearly what it is. 
Yeah, it's a, it's really, I mean, I did, I was hoping for more from this administration. I got to say, I was hoping for a little more vision here at the very least and a little more teeth, you know, but. Yeah. And the OSHA thing was very disappointing. Very disappointing. Sure. But that's going to have to be another show, people. You'll just have to, you know, wait for Tom to come back so we can talk about how the Biden administration just whiffed on protecting frontline workers if they're not in the healthcare industry. Unbelievable. But that's another great story that Tom just wrote. So um, thanks so much, Tom. <laughs> All right. You're Thank really you so the best. It's, it's, a, it's always a joy and a delight. I really appreciate you helping me to understand this because quite honestly, there was a lot to this that I just, you know, my brain just glazes over over this stuff. So yeah, I appreciate your clarity. Um, and thanks to our sponsor for this week and uh, see you next week, folks. Really appreciate you tuning in. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>